Chapter two of Book five of Les Miserables, Volume five by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anchor. Les Miserables, Volume five by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book five, Grandfather and Grandson. Chapter two. Marius, emerging from civil war, makes ready for domestic war. For a long time Marius was neither dead nor alive. For many weeks he lay in a fever accompanied by delirium, and by tolerably grave cerebral symptoms, caused more by the shocks of the wounds on the head than by the wounds themselves. He repeated Cosette's name for whole nights in the melancholy loquacity of fever, and with the sombre obstinacy of agony. The extent of some of the lesions presented a serious danger, the suppuration of large wounds being always liable to become reabsorbed and consequently to kill the sick man under certain atmospheric conditions. At every change of weather, at the slightest storm, the physician was uneasy. Above all things, he repeated, let the wounded man be subjected to no emotion. The dressing of the wounds was complicated and difficult. The fixation of apparatus and bandages by cerecloths not having been invented as yet at that epoch. Nicolette used up a sheet as big as the ceiling, as she put it, for lint. It was not without difficulty that the chlorurated lotions and the nitrate of silver overcame the gangrene. As long as there was any danger, Monsieur Gillenormand, seated in despair at his grandson's pillow, was, like Marius, neither alive nor dead. Every day, sometimes twice a day, a very well-dressed gentleman with white hair, such was the description given by the porter, came to inquire about the wounded man, and left a large package of lint for the dressings. Finally, on the 7th of September, four months to a day after the sorrowful night, when he had been brought back to his grandfather in a dying condition, the doctor declared that he would answer for Marius. Convalescence began but Marius was forced to remain for two months more, stretched out on a long chair, on account of the results called up by the fracture of his collar-bone. There always is a last wound like that, which will not close, and which prolongs the dressings indefinitely, to the great annoyance of the sick person. However, this long illness and this long convalescence saved him from all pursuit. In France there is no wrath, not even of a public character, which six months will not extinguish. Revolts, in the present state of society, are so much the fault of every one, that they are followed by a certain necessity of shutting the eyes. Let us add that the inexcusable Gisquet order, which enjoined doctors to lodge information against the wounded, having outraged public opinion, and not opinion alone, but the king first of all, the wounded were covered and protected by this indignation and, with the exception of those who had been made prisoners in the very act of combat, the councils of war did not dare to trouble any one. So Marius was left in peace. Monsieur Gillenormand first passed through all manner of anguish, and then through every form of ecstasy. It was found difficult to prevent his passing every night beside the wounded man. He had his big armchair carried to Marius's bedside. He required his daughter to take the finest linen in the house for compresses and bandages. Mademoiselle Gillenormand, like her sage and elderly person, 
contrived to spare the fine linen, while allowing the grandfather to think that he was obeyed. Monsieur Gillenormand would not permit any one to explain to him that for the preparation of lint Baptiste is not nearly so good as coarse linen, nor new linen as old linen. He was present at all the dressings of the wound from which Mademoiselle Gillenormand modestly absented herself. When the dead flesh was cut away with scissors, he said, "Ay, ay." Nothing was more touching than to see him with his gentle senile palsy offer the wounded man a cup of his cooling draught. He overwhelmed the doctor with questions. He did not observe that he asked the same ones over and over again. On the day when the doctor announced to him that Marius was out of danger, the good man was in a delirium. He made his porter a present of three louis. That evening, on his return to his own chamber, he danced a gavotte, using his thumb and forefinger as castanets, and he sang the following song. Jeanne est née à Fougères, vrenie d'une bergère, prunelle, j'adore son jupon, carquois, fripon. Amour te vis en elle, car c'est dans ça que tu mets ton narquois. Moi, je la chante et j'aime, plus que Diane même, Jeanne et ce dur teton breton. Love, thou dwellest in her, for tis in her eyes that thou placest thy quivers lie scamp. As for me, I sing her, and I love, more than Diana herself, Jeanne and her firm Breton breasts. Then he knelt upon a chair, and Basque, who was watching him through the half-open door, made sure that he was praying. Up to that time he had not believed in God. At each succeeding phase of improvement, which became more and more pronounced, the grandfather raved. He executed a multitude of mechanical actions full of joy. He ascended and descended the stairs, without knowing why. A pretty female neighbour was amazed one morning at receiving a big bouquet. It was Monsieur Gillenormand who had sent it to her. The husband made a jealous scene. Monsieur Gillenormand tried to draw Nicolette upon his knees. He called Marius, Monsieur le Baron, he shouted, Long live the Republic! Every moment he kept asking the doctor, Is he no longer in danger? He gazed upon Marius with the eyes of a grandmother. He brooded over him while he ate. He no longer knew himself. He no longer rendered himself an account of himself. Marius was the master of the house. There was abdication in his joy. He was the grandson of his grandson. In the state of joy in which he then was, he was the most venerable of children. In his fear lest he might fatigue or annoy the convalescent, he stepped behind him to smile. He was content, joyous, delighted, charming, young. His white locks added a gentle majesty to the gay radiance of his visage. When grace is mingled with wrinkles, it is adorable. There is an indescribable aurora in beaming old age. As for Marius, as he allowed them to dress his wounds and care for him, he had but one fixed idea. Cosette. After the fever and delirium had left him, he did not again pronounce her name, and it might have been supposed that he no longer thought of her. He held his peace, precisely because his soul was there. He did not know what had become of Cosette. The whole affair of the Rue de la Chanverie was like a cloud in his memory. Shadows that were almost indistinct floated through his mind. Eponine, Gavroche, Mabeuf, the Thénardier, all his friends gloomily intermingled with the smoke of the barricade. 
the strange passage of Monsieur Fauchelevent through that adventure produced on him the effect of a puzzle in a tempest. He understood nothing connected with his own life. He did not know how, nor by whom he had been saved, and no one of those around him knew this. All that they had been able to tell him was that he had been brought home at night in a hackney-coach to the Rue des Filles du Cavert, past, present, future, were nothing more to him than the mist of a vague idea. But in that fog there was one immovable point, one clear and precise outline, something made of granite, a resolution, a will, to find Cosette once more. For him the idea of life was not distinct from the idea of Cosette. He had decreed in his heart that he would not accept the one without the other, and he was immovably resolved to exact of any person whatever who should desire to force him to live, from his grandfather, from fate, from hell, the restitution of his vanished Eden. He did not conceal from himself the fact that obstacles existed. Let us here emphasize one detail. He was not won over, and was but little softened by all the solicitude and tenderness of his grandfather. In the first place he was not in the secret. Then, in his reveries of an invalid, which was still feverish, possibly he distrusted this tenderness as a strange and novel thing, which had for its object his conquest. He remained cold. The grandfather absolutely wasted his poor old smile. Marius said to himself that this was all right so long as he, Marius, did not speak, and let things take their course but that when it became a question of Cosette, he would find another face, and that his grandfather's true attitude would be unmasked. Then there would be an unpleasant scene, a recrudescence of family questions, a confrontation of positions, every sort of sarcasm and all manner of objections at one and the same time. Fauchelevent, Couplevent, fortune, poverty, a stone about his neck, the future. Violent resistance, conclusion, a refusal. Marius stiffened himself in advance. And then, in proportion as he regained life, the old ulcers of his memory opened once more. He reflected again on the past. Colonel Pontmercy placed himself once more between M. Gillenormand and him, Marius. He told himself that he had no true kindness to expect from a person who had been so unjust and so hard to his father. And with health there returned to him a sort of harshness toward his grandfather. The old man was gently pained by this. Monsieur Gillenormand, without, however, allowing it to appear, observed that Marius, ever since the latter had been brought back to him and had regained consciousness, had not once called him father. It is true that he did not say Monsieur to him, but he contrived not to say either the one or the other by means of a certain way of turning his phrases. Obviously a crisis was approaching. As almost always happens in such cases, Marius skirmished before giving battle by way of proving himself. This is called feeling the ground. One morning it came to pass that M. Gillenormand spoke slightingly of the convention, apropos of a newspaper which had fallen into his hands, and gave vent to a royalist harangue on Danton, Saint-Just, and Robespierre. The men of ninety-three were giants, said Marius with severity. The old man held his peace, and uttered not a sound during the remainder of that day. Marius, who had always present to his mind the inflexible grandfather of his early years, interpreted this silence as a profound concentration of wrath, augured from it a hot conflict, and augmented his preparations for the fray in the inmost recesses of his mind. 
He decided that, in case of a refusal, he would tear off his bandages, dislocate his collarbone, that he would lay bare all the wounds which he had left, and would reject all food. His wounds were his munitions of war. He would have Cosette or die. He awaited the propitious moment with the crafty patience of the sick. That moment arrived. End of Book 5, Chapter 2